Elevated insulin causes insulin resistance. That has absolutely been shown in isolated cells, like I could grow muscle cells in a dish, increase the insulin in the dish, and it'll start to become insulin resistant. You can prove it in rodents, which has been done, and in humans. We know that in all three of these biomedical models, cells, rodents, humans, chronically elevated insulin will cause insulin resistance. Full stop, that is absolutely known, no debating it. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. If you've heard the term insulin resistance before, you've very likely heard the name Dr. Ben Bickman. He's author of Why We Get Sick, and he's also very close to Levels. He's one of our advisors. Well, Austin McGuffey, who's also a friend of Levels and very much a content creator that we work with on a regular basis, well, the two of them sat down and recorded a podcast on all the thought leadership that Dr. Bickman puts forth. They started off talking a lot about family, they talked about metabolic health and kids, and they ended up going pretty deep into all these different facets of metabolic health. Fat cells, how they develop and change over time, things like insulin resistance, what does it mean and how can we think about it? Why is it actually important for people at any age to pay attention to things like insulin and insulin resistance? What do gender and hormonal differences have to do? What do age differences have to do? And what does ethnicity have to do with insulin resistance? It was a great conversation and there's always so much to learn from Dr. Bickman. Conversations could go on, in Austin's words, for hours and hours and there'd be tons to learn. So love listening to the episode and anyway, no need to wait. Here's Austin. First of all, I just wanted to let you know that this is a huge honor for me because I used to be a personal trainer and uh, one of my clients had triglycerides through the roof, blood sugar was crazy. And it kind of took me off my path of helping people build muscles, learn more about their metabolism. And why we get sick was my introduction to pretty much everything about metabolism. And it was just written in such a, a friendly way. I think listening to your videos on YouTube helped me to read it in your voice. Yeah, and I yeah, it a little bit easier to understand. Yeah. So thank you for such a great book. And oh, um, my pleasure. That's so nice. I'm thrilled to hear it. Everything. Yeah, it's awesome. So actually, I know that we're going to get into a lot of the science, but first I want to acknowledge you as a human being, as someone who has all this information, but was wondering if you kind of take us through a day in your life where you have all this information about metabolism in your head. What are some of the decisions that you, you know, make on a daily basis that, you know, make for your metabolic health? What a fun question. That's fun. It's a bit different from what I'm normally asked. You know, frankly, Austin, that's certainly something I think a lot about. Overwhelmingly, my mind is centered on my wife and kids. I mean, I just have to say that up front. I mean, just so people know that very little of my of my time is spent wondering about these kinds of issues. As much as I love it, mm -hmm. the fact is, man, life is complicated and I'm always thinking about, all right, how's my wife doing? What do I need to do there? How are my kids doing? What do I need to do there? And then there's a little sliver in at church, you know, what, what am I doing with church? You know, and then mm -hmm. it's a little sliver of all right, metabolism. Now I'm all in. Now <laughs> yeah. let's open that little sliver up and, and zoom in it. on it. Then it really is 
it's simple, uh, I think, not to say that it's easy, because simple and easy are not the same thing. But largely, my motivation, my singular motivation is understanding insulin. And then in my own life, what am I doing to help my insulin stay low? Because mm-hmm. so many things can get worked out with just that one paradigm. If a dietary paradigm has an insulin-centric view, it is going to do all the things that people are talking about nowadays. You want to prolong, you want your brain to work a little better and use energy better. Well, then keep insulin low. You know, that's like a staple strategy for, you know, almost every kind of intervention that we found for improving brain health. You want to activate autophagy. There's all these complicated stories around autophagy. Well, good luck activating autophagy if your insulin is elevated. It cannot happen. It is antithetical to this. Weight loss, you know, for me as a middle-aged bald guy who wants my wife to find me attractive, I got to stay kind of lean, you know? Yeah. Uh, I just want to keep my insulin low. And, And that, of course, complicates, that's a complicated story where someone hears me say that and thinks, ah, Ben's just saying the only solution to weight loss is low insulin. I'm not, I'm not really saying that. There's, a, there's an energy approach and an insulin approach. I just think the low insulin approach is more sustainable. But basically, I know that if insulin is low, a fat cell has no choice but to be breaking down fat. Lipolysis cannot be blocked if insulin mm-hmm. is low. So anyway, myriad reasons, all of which come back to one central simple idea which is how can I keep my insulin low? And then in my own life, that typically means I am very, very strict with breakfast for myself. Mm -hmm. I'm very, very strict with lunch. And I'm fairly liberal with dinner because dinner is the social meal. I want to eat that with my family. I don't want it to be weird. And so dinner will be kind of whatever the family has planned. If one of my kids has planned dinner, if mom is making it or if I'm making it, it's not just, I mean, if left to my own devices, it would be steak and vegetables every day. But, you know, the kids don't want to do that. And I don't want to force them to do that. So when it's pizza, we're having pizza. And I might just sometimes eat the toppings or I might eat the whole thing. And I don't even care. Dinner is with the family, whatever it is. But then everything else, I try to be super buttoned up, super tight. And that's that's my way of taking what I know and putting it into practice in the life of a middle-aged family man. Right. So of all the things that you do to keep insulin low, is there anything that requires like a little bit more willpower than anything else? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great follow up. Yeah, for sure. It is not falling in, not indulging in the witching hour of the day, which is the evening. For me, that is my absolute weakest time. As much as I know, as much as I know, it's it's just such a wonderful example of the difference between what you know is right and then actually doing it. That's relevant to all of human behavior, where there's that disconnect on occasion where I know I shouldn't do this, and yet you fall into it. And and dare I even say that's kind of an addictive sort of habit. Well, my addictions, if you will, make it so that I crave junk food in the evenings. Like if we have cereal, like cold, like cereal, like a box of cereal, you know, like, for example, this is funny, the the audience will get a kick out of this. It was St. Patrick's Day. And we bought Lucky Charms for the kids and they never have cereal. They never have cereal like that. It's always a homemade breakfast with lots of eggs, some bacon, and I'll make waffles and crepes, but it's always super high protein and high fat, Mm -hmm. relatively lower carb for the kids. But we got Lucky Charms on St. Patrick's Day. And of course the kids loved it. They had fun and it was fun. And we had some leftover Lucky Charms that night. Uh I'm telling you, man, when there is cereal in the house, 
It's calling your name. It's calling my name. And it is like, I'm like chewing on my knuckles kind of to try to deny myself that temptation. But that's just kind of from my old, it's really a habit that I picked up um, when I was a college student. That just mm-hmm. became a habit. You'd come home from the, you'd go to the gym with your roommates, come home and eat three bowls of cereal, you know, whatever. And that's to this day, it's 25 years gone almost. And it's still something that just sort of every night it kind of calls out. So that's the hardest thing. It's evenings. I could look at that indulgence, that treat any other time of the day, and I'm totally indifferent to it. It -hmm. doesn't tempt me at all until we've had dinner, we've cleaned up. I'm getting the kids are kind of in bed. It's this kind of quiet time around nine o'clock because all the kids are in bed by nine. And that's just for mom and dad's sake. You know, we want the kids to go to bed so they can sleep, but mom and dad need some downtime. And then it's like, I need a bowl of cereal and Mm -hmm. the world will end. If I don't have it, you know, I bet. And so anyway, my solution, I just don't have it in the house. Right. We just don't keep cereal in the house. Not for the sake of my kids, but it's for dad because daddy's a little <laughs> addict. And I admit it. I said we can't have it in the house. So that's my strategy. My strategy to control that addiction, yeah. which is very real to me, it's that mm-hmm. I just don't get it in the house. I'm stronger at the grocery store than I am in the home in the evening. Absolutely. You know, that's me too. I have a pretty bad sugar addiction myself. Uh, it's not cereal, it's, it's candy. So anytime mm. there's candy around me, and I don't realize it's like a week later, and I realize I'm in this candy just yeah. mania. And I look yeah, up. You come out of your candy coma. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I don't feel good. So I have kids myself. I have four kids between the ages of three and nine. And awesome. one of the things that I hear often from them is, I'll suggest like, hey, you know, you want this treat like a granola bar or something. And mm-hmm. I know the damage that a granola bar mm-hmm. can have to your blood sugar levels if you eat it on an empty stomach. But I'm also not crazy to the point where I just want to take it away altogether. So it's like, well, hey, why don't you try some of this um, protein and fat first? And then you can enjoy that. And I hear, you know, you get, I get the eye rolls. And then it's like, well, why do you care so much about my blood sugar? I want to know what the atmosphere is like in your home, like for your kids, being that you know how important it is to keep insulin low. How do you kind of coach your kids through making those types of decisions for themselves? Yeah, very, very similar, actually, to what you do. I also don't want to have a home where the kids look at food as forbidden. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't want them to leave the home someday and then just go bonkers. You know, they go hog wild because they say, my dad never, I never have had a single chocolate bar in my whole life. Now I'm going to go insane with chocolate bar. So I didn't ever want it to be that restrictive. So one, we don't have a lot of junk food in the house, but we will occasionally get some kind of granola bars for the kids that they might work into their lunches. And that's just sort of when they eat it, they know that they're not snacking on it. But nevertheless, we'll have some snacks, but typically not many. But if they want one of those kind of treat like snacks, I say the exact same thing. Hey, look, yeah. you're hungry. You're growing. Oh, man, I love that you got, you're getting so big and strong. It's awesome. Can you eat a little protein first? When have you had some protein? And I just focus on the protein, knowing that what, all the protein sources we have in the house come with fat. And that's my view. Yeah. Fat, let fat come with the protein. And in some instances, we add a little if, like, if it's like you know adding butter to something, of course. But even still, I have the exact same strategy as you. And I just want them to know that in our home, we prioritize some things. And I'll just tell them. Like I'll say, look, you you want these muscles. You just got back from lacrosse practice. You just got back from karate practice. Man, isn't it awesome to work those muscles? You you need some protein. Those muscles need some protein. And so I always try to put that in context. Like you're growing, your body's recovering, you're trying to build muscle. Uh, I love it that you want that snack. You're hungry and you need some energy to grow. That's great. 
let's yeah. put some protein in there first and then let's go that route. That's so just like you said. Yeah, I think in those adolescent years, obviously nutrition is very important because not only are, you know, it's what we eat making up our entire biology and our brain is growing during that time. But mm -hmm. I actually just saw that you made a recent post on your Instagram page. Thank you for posting more, by the way. I know you just yeah. recently to, <laughs> to doing that. You've been showing some really good information. Austin, hey, it's a chore. I'm not kidding. Like this sounds like I don't mean to be like dramatic about it, but that is something that I, I do disdainfully. I have such a disdain for social media. And yeah. also I'm like, my kids don't have it. And they literally, it's banned. They don't get it. No smartphones, yeah. no social media until they're wow. graduated from high school. Hopefully mm -hmm. it doesn't blow up in my face. But I have such a disdain for social media, but I also appreciate that this is a tool. And, and so that's why, that's why. So every Monday I tell myself, I got to make a video. I got to make yeah. a video. And I just sort of force myself and hype myself up into doing it. So thanks. I'm glad, it, I'm glad it's Yeah, no, it's working. I'm sure one of the reasons it's so disdainful is because you're talking about such nuanced topics, but you have to do it in less than a minute. And of course, yeah. you get yeah. bombarded with all kinds of questions. And I have a few questions myself. You actually just Please. did a post recently about fat cell accumulation and a period of time in our lives when that is happening. Mm -hmm. I was hoping you can kind of talk more about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, glad to. Yeah, it's impossible to convey everything I'd want to. But I never know what's going to really resonate with people. Yeah, so the short and skinny of it is that when we're born, we have a rapid um, degree of fat cell growth. And it, it's kind of this kind of negatively sort of accelerating curve where there's a lot of fat cell development and it starts during infancy. And then it starts to, it keeps rapidly, you know, it's still going during childhood, starting to taper off during adolescence. And then typically, by the time we finish adolescence, the number of fat cells we have is generally what we're going to keep. This has been shown out in human overfeeding studies where weight gain is a function of hypertrophy, not hyperplasia. And those are the two processes whereby a body is gaining more fat. Each individual fat cell is growing, hypertrophy, or the fat cells stay rather modest in size, they're just multiplying, so hyperplasia. Now, full in all its full color here, Females do have a greater propensity for hyperplasia, particularly in the gluteofemoral fat. That's the fat on the thighs and, and the butt, basically. And that's because estrogen. Estrogen provides a hyperplastic signal to those fat cells. So if a woman, even if she is, she's an adult now, she's a woman, I would say, well, the fat cell number is set. However, if there is sufficient energy and sufficient insulin to tell her body to store more fat, then she can activate more hyperplasia at the gluteofemoral fat pad. Now, much to her chagrin, it means her thighs and butt are getting bigger. However, yeah. that's also why a female will very, very often be fatter, have more fat, that's a more polite way, have more fat than a male, and yet be healthier. Because hyperplastic fat cells, which are smaller, are much healthier. They're much more insulin sensitive, and they don't, and they're less inflammatory. And maybe I'll come back to those two points in just a second. But suffice it to say, whereas typically an adult has a set number of fat cells, in women, it actually can fluctuate a little more based on estrogen levels. And then that level is you know, fairly static throughout the life of the individual. And then when they get to around the age of 65 or so, then fat cell number actually starts to go down. Now, even throughout this adulthood period, fat cells are not immortal. That's a common misconception, even on college campuses. 
you'll have an anatomist or cell biologist say fat cells are immortal. You have a bunch of 20-year-olds groaning, oh, that sucks. And the professor gets a laugh from the 100 students. That's just yeah. not true. Fat cells are long-lived, though. They live for about 10 years. But during that kind of static phase, for every one fat cell that dies, it's simply replaced by another. Until later age, around 65 or so, it starts to come down. And we aren't replacing fat cells anymore. So now our fat cell number goes down. Now, to the lay audience, they'd say, well, that's a great thing. I want to get rid of my fat cells. You don't, actually. We don't want to get rid of fat cells. We want our fat cells to shrink. We don't want to lose a fat cell number because what happens is the person's reaching that now reduction in fat cell stage. If they're still eating a diet that is sufficiently high in energy and insulin spiking, that is wanting their body to store the same amount of fat they had, like overall fat mass, then as you're leaving, as you're losing fat cell number, of course, the remaining fat cells are picking up that energetic slack and they all undergo hypertrophy. Now, to finish the story, back to the two things I'd mentioned with how women can have more fat and yet be metabolically healthier than men, which is universally the case, it's that when a fat cell starts to hypertrophy, once it gets to you know, around four or five times bigger than normal, which is about a, you know, like 100 micrometers, which is pretty considerable for a cell, it has reached a point of maximum dimension. It simply can't get bigger without suffering consequences, even potentially like bursting, which would be very, very unhealthy. And so it starts to become resistant to insulin because insulin tells fat cells to grow. And it's basically the fat cell saying, hey, insulin, I'm as big as I can get. You're elevated because the body keeps putting in these insulin spiking foods. I have to stop listening to you. So you're trying to get me to hold on to my fats. I'm going to I'm not going to do it anymore and I'm going to start letting some go. So fats keep coming in, but now they're coming out at the same rate, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. So the fat cell stays big but static. It doesn't get any bigger. And so one it became insulin resistant. And then two, as each individual fat cell is growing several times beyond what it used to be, they're pushing each other further and further away from blood vessels. And the fat cell starts to become hypoxic or low oxygen because it's just too far. And so it starts releasing these pro-inflammatory cytokines in order to help stimulate the growth of new blood vessels. So it's trying to correct the hypoxia. Now, the tragedy though, Austin, in this whole paradigm, which has gone longer than I had intended, is that the fat cell, as it undergoes hypertrophy, it becomes insulin resistant and pro-inflammatory. Both of these are things it's doing to preserve its own life. But the consequence is it's making the rest of the body suffer. So the fat cells efforts at survival end up hurting the rest of the body. But anyway, that's the several minute primer on fat yeah. cell you know, growth, how fat tissue can expand through two different processes and one's better than the other. Right. So assuming that the majority of, or this sounds like the majority of fat cell growth is happening in our adolescent years, how does that, I guess, set us up for what is called metabolically healthy obese yeah. in the future? If fat cells are, okay, so I know you said women are more prone to being able to store fat mm -hmm. because- Yeah, hyper, they're more prone to hyperplasia, yeah. More hyperplasia, exactly. So hyperplasia can still happen after those adolescent years. Yep, in a woman especially, but Austin, this is a sliver there was a study, this is a sliver of the population, another sliver. So within the whole realm of people that gain enough weight to become obese, there is a study years ago that 
concluded that only about 15% of those obese individuals have fat gain that is accounted for by hyperplasia, that overwhelmingly it's hypertrophy. Now, if we go back to that 15%, these are the kind of anomaly group where the paradoxical group, where they are overweight and often fantastically overweight. These are the individuals who can get to 600 pounds. The vast majority of us could never get this. You and I, if we started overeating our guts out, we could never get to 600 pounds. And this is true for almost everyone. They simply do not have the genetics that would allow them to undergo that degree of hyperplasia. Some people do. Oddly enough, it's actually more commonly people of Northern European or, you know, kind of stereotypical Caucasian ethnicity who can get fatter and stay healthier because genetically they're just a little more prone to have that hyperplasia. And these are the individuals who will have typically normal blood pressure. They will not have type two diabetes and they're the, they're, you know, healthier than you'd expect. They're not healthy. I'm not going to say healthy. I'm not going to say metabolically healthy and, and yet obese because it isn't, but they're healthier than you'd expect as opposed to say someone of Chinese ethnicity. And this is something I looked at during my postdoctoral um, work in Singapore, you know, down in Southeast Asia, where you could have a Caucasian, Caucasian European background and compare that to a, a Chinese background. And they were both gaining fat at the same rate. Well, that Chinese guy is going to start suffering the consequences of that weight gain far, far earlier. He's only gained 10 or 15 pounds of fat and he's already getting increased blood pressure. He's already getting insulin resistant. Fatty liver disease is already coming. Whereas the Caucasian European guy, oh, he's, he's doing fine. You know, put another 50 on him before he starts to notice those same consequences. And then African ethnicities tend to be kind of somewhere in the middle. They can hold fat a little better than Asian Chinese ethnicities, but not quite as well as Caucasian Northern European. And there could be some interesting evolutionary reasons for that, mm -hmm. that if you're more fairer skinned, you probably... Your ancestors came from a northern or a climate closer to the poles where it's good for making a lot of vitamin D. So maybe there's an advantage to getting fatter more easily just for, you know, thermal regulation. But be that as it may, there are differences across the populations. But even still, the majority of people who gain fat gain fat through hypertrophy, which is why they get sick from it. And then it's that narrower portion of the people who gain a lot more fat. 15% of the people who are in the, the obese category who are gaining fat more through hyperplasia. And it's a trade-off because, yeah, they'll stay a little healthier, but they'll also get fantastically overweight much more easily yeah. than anybody else. That makes a lot of sense. And that's interesting because I think that we're in the middle of seeing some beauty standards in this country shift where carrying more weight is sometimes desired. Like there's, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but well, maybe you have, like, especially yeah. on social media, there's this thing where Everybody's trying to get, you know, thick. They want to gain weight and they will probably prefer to have higher estrogen levels to store more fat in their um, thighs and their butt. But I wonder, as that has become more of an acceptable beauty standard, what are the long-term implications of carrying more fat? Yeah, well, the vast majority of these people, even though they're women, they're still going to have hypertrophy because yeah. that study I cited earlier where it's, you know, only 15%, that was across all sexes. So it's mm -hmm. not like women are immune to the consequences of weight gain. It's a complicated issue, of course, and 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 I appreciate that you and I need to speak about it delicately so that we don't have an angry <laughs> mob coming after us. Right. Because while I do think there's something inherently valuable for appreciating your value as a human, and your value as a human 
I'm very religious, but even religious religion aside, everyone has an inherent value. And, and I think any rational person, atheist or, or believing person would agree to that to some degree, mm -hmm. I would hope. And so that I think should be separate from your, your physical form, you know, your capability that what you're able to do with your body. However, mm -hmm. in my worldview is largely formed by <clears throat> this idea of responsibility and that entails a degree of discipline. And now we're getting into the delicate domain. So I, you know, I'll even put that to the side. Scientifically, as a biomedical scientist, I can in no way condone that someone would, that they would want to be gaining weight because it's a new kind of cultural phenomenon of just love yourself and let's all gain weight. I think there were going to be catastrophic consequences because it's one mm -hmm. thing to love yourself at any size, but it's another to pay for it or to have the the country you're living in paying for your, your accepting of your body shape. And, and again, everyone listening, I know this is so, so delicate and I don't think it's yeah. judgmental, but so as a biomedical scientist who only looks at the data, I can just rely on that and say, the consequences of this are not going to be good if this trend continues and grows. Right. And so with that being said, and moving away from a bit more sensitive topic. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah thanks for getting me canceled. <laughs> we'll be canceled together. I stand behind you. Yeah. <laughs> so when, you, when we talk about like weight gain, one of the things that I learned from your book was that insulin resistance is at the root of several of the things that are plaguing our society, including weight gain. And I talk about this a lot on my own personal social media, and most of the people that I have these conversations with have absolutely no idea what insulin resistance is. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, coming from an expert, if you were speaking to, I don't know, a 10-year-old, how would you explain insulin resistance? Yeah, shoot. To a 10-year-old, that'll be tough. Let's say high school student. Can I do that? <laughs> Let's go for that. Let's that'll be that. a little easier. A 10-year-old <laughs> will be a little too tough. Um, right. To a 10-year-old, I'll just say, hey, let's play some Nintendo Switch. <laughs> but which is what I do with my my nine year old. Okay. Yeah. So insulin resistance is misunderstood, even in the metabolically minded community, even in the circles mm -hmm. that you and I are hanging out in. It is misunderstood, and it is thus invoked improperly. To understand insulin resistance, we have to understand that it comes as a pair of problems. Always, it comes in two forms. The first is the obvious form, which is what earned its name in the first place, which is when you had cell biologists treating an organism or a cell with insulin, like actually putting insulin into the system and seeing that the insulin wasn't working as well. Mm -hmm. That is the, that gives rise to the definition of insulin resistance per se, where insulin isn't working the same way that it used to. Now mm -hmm. that is not a universal phenomenon. The body has all kinds of different cells and every cell responds to insulin. Literally every cell, there's no exception. Every cell in the body has insulin receptors, little doors on the surface of the cell that only insulin can come knock on. In right. some of those cells, insulin isn't knocking as well as it used to, or the cell mm -hmm. isn't hearing the knocking door. That's right. the first part of it. But it's important to remember, in light of the second thing I'll mention in a moment, that it's not a universal thing. It's not like insulin isn't working everywhere. Some mm -hmm. cells aren't responding as well to insulin as they used to, but some are responding perfectly to insulin still. And I'll mm. have an example in a second. But then the second part of insulin resistance, the other side of this coin, it's a coin that we call insulin resistance. One side is the altered insulin signaling as a hormone, telling the cell to do things. It's just not doing it quite as well as it used to. The other side of the coin is that blood insulin levels are elevated. 
Mm-hmm. So hyperinsulinemia is the term for that. You cannot have the first side of that coin without the other side of that coin. Right. You can't have it the other way around, which is why I'm not explaining it that way, and I won't get into that. But uh-huh. you cannot have insulin resistance without hyperinsulinemia. That's a problem when we start looking across the body. For example, to the two forms of infertility in men and women are perfect examples of this. The most common form of infertility in females is a disease called polycystic ovary syndrome. And that is entirely a result of the hyperinsulinemia, the backside Mm. of the coin, if you will. And that's because insulin is telling some cells in her ovaries to make less estrogens and more testosterone. It's inhibiting the conversion of testosterone into the estrogens. That's a conversion. All estrogens come from testosterone and insulin is stopping it. Now, normally insulin is really low. So it's only inhibiting that conversion very, very little to the point of being irrelevant. However, in insulin resistance, when insulin is elevated, it's inhibiting it too much. And now her ovaries are releasing too much testosterone, not enough estrogens, and the ovulatory cycle isn't working, and she fails to ovulate, and now she has infertility. Mm-hmm. And again, that was all a consequence of the hyperinsulinemia. In men, it's a consequence of the insulin resistance of his blood cells. And as the right. blood cells are becoming insulin resistant, they can't make as much of a molecule called nitric oxide. Mm. And nitric oxide is a potent vasodilator, which a man needs for normal erectile dysfunction. He's got to move blood. He needs right. the blood vessels to expand, but he can't do that. His blood vessels become insulin resistant, and now he has erectile dysfunction, the most common form of infertility in men. So two totally different problems, but housed under the same realm of infertility, but both consequence of each different of each of the two different sides of the insulin resistance coin. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like almost like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Was it hyperinsulinemia that caused oh, insulin resistance? Or very, was it the insulin resistance that caused the hyperinsulinemia? Do we know? Well, that's a wonderful question. Yeah, yeah, we do to a degree because it is a complicated circle. And then mm-hmm. once it's going, it's impossible to know where it started. And so right. you have to just do this through interventional studies. But what I can say with absolute certainty is that Elevated insulin causes insulin resistance. That is absolutely been shown in isolated cells. Like I could grow muscle cells in a dish, increase the insulin in the dish, and it'll start to become insulin resistant. You can prove it in rodents, which has been done, and in humans. Mm. We know that in all three of these biomedical models, cells, rodents, humans, chronically elevated insulin will cause insulin resistance. Full stop. That is absolutely known. No debating it. Mm. Now, however... There are other inputs that can cause insulin resistance, like chronically elevated stress. Right. You know, if you're stressed and you have elevated epinephrine and cortisol, those can cause insulin resistance on their own. And then that's causing insulin resistance. And then the insulin starts to climb to try to overcome it. Well, that started in the other direction then. And the same with inflammation. If a body has inflammation, then it will become insulin resistant, whether it's because the person's fighting an infection, whether they have an autoimmune disease, it doesn't matter. Immunity is activated, inflammation is up, and that Mm -hmm. means the body starts becoming more insulin resistant. And then the insulin would go up as a result of the insulin resistance. So it can go both ways. But I think in most people, it is the chronically elevated insulin because they eat every two hours and they're Mm -hmm. eating insulin spiking starches and sugars So for me, while all three of those are primary causes of insulin resistance, I put my money on the hyperinsulinemia as the best strategy because that's the one you can start to change immediately. You know, if I tell someone, 
lower your stress and lower your inflammation, they're going to say, great, how do I do that? And now I'm right. now I'm more stressed, you know, <laughs> and so it's harder to do. But if you can change the insulin, you can grab that lever really, really firmly and pull that thing down in just a few hours. Insulin starts to come down. The body starts to become more insulin sensitive. Right. So we haven't made it to the point where we're able to continuously monitor insulin just yet. We're hoping for that soon. But mm -hmm. we know that glucose is a pretty good indicator of where your insulin levels are. So people that are eating insulin spiking foods, it's safe to say that these are also glucose spiking foods, right? 100 yeah, percent. Yep. OK. That's the reason I love that's why I'm an advocate of of a CGM. Likewise. Because, <laughs> yeah, because it tells you something that a static glucose measurement can't. Like if right. you're going in for your annual wellness visit and you prick your finger and measure your glucose, well, that's glucose after fasting for 12 hours. Mm -hmm. I want to know what's happening in real time. And sure right. enough, if a person's indulging, that glucose is going to be all over the place for hours. And then by the time mm -hmm. it's, I mean, even before it starts to settle down, they've done it again. And it starts to settle down, they've done it again. And so yeah. the more someone is looking at their CGM and they're just seeing nice flat lines, then you're doing all right. That's interesting. I have, I want to know, and I'm doing a little bit of an experiment myself. So I, I monitor my glucose as well with levels and I've started doing an experiment with my family members. So mm -hmm. I've got my mom and my dad and four That's of my brothers. Great. Good for you. Yeah. So yeah, we have a group chat and everybody's, my brother ate oatmeal this morning and his glucose spiked by like 60 points. And so he's all And the thing about. is, Austin, the thing is, people say he could have been talking to his doctor Perhaps. And the doctor would have said, you need to control your glucose. What should I do? You should eat oatmeal, something like oatmeal. But the best of intentions, right. and then you measure your CGM and you say, oh, my gosh. You, you, and that, that to me is such a value of the CGM because you can't unsee it. Right. And that kind of information is going to lead to a behavior change. You know, you don't have to now go to your brother and say, you should stop eating oatmeal. He's going to be the one to say, oh, man. I should really stop eating oatmeal. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly what he said. Well, he said, I'm never eating oatmeal without protein or fat again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but I want to know, like, there's studies that show that oatmeal, you know, they say it's heart healthy and it contributes mm -hmm. to stable blood sugar. I'm still baffled by it. I don't understand how when I first started monitoring my glucose, I was shooting up into 160 milligrams per deciliter yeah, consistently yeah. eating oatmeal. Yeah. How is that considered to be heart healthy and proven to be something that stabilizes blood sugar when we're seeing the exact opposite? Yeah, well, I don't know. You you may know something I don't know. I've not seen claims about blood sugar control like in any okay. kind of label. Like when you buy the oatmeal container, it'll yeah. always have the little heart healthy. I've not seen anything from like the American Diabetes, so I, I actually can't speak to that. But they okay. say they're able to claim it's heart healthy because in human studies, it has been shown to lower LDL. Compared right. to like a standard, I'm sure compared to the other guys who are eating uh, Lucky Charms, for goodness sake. Right. And so, but they could say, well, based on a standard American diet or compared to a standard American diet, this was heart healthy because it lowered LDL. And that would be enough. Then the American heart can give it its little stamp and then they mm -hmm. can advertise that. And the American heart will get its payment from the, from the company <laughs> right. uh, for being able to use their name. But that's why I don't think anyone, that's how they could justify it and claim that it's heart healthy, which I still mm -hmm. don't agree with. But that's right. how you get away with it. I don't know how there'd be any claim that it's going to stabilize blood sugar. That to me is would be totally baseless. Right. That's interesting. So another thing that I've come across with experiments with my family members is how much of a role genetics play in glucose control. So I have some family members who are actually diabetic. Mm -hmm. But as far as my immediate family, everybody's blood sugar, it looks like it's pretty much in stable range. And I was yeah. the first one to monitor my blood sugar. And 
I'll be, I thought I was special. My blood sugar was normal. Everything was perfect. Yeah. yeah. Everybody else gets attached and everything is perfect. So are there any studies or is there anything out there that kind of shows how genetics or to what degree genetics contribute to glucose control? Yeah, there are a lot. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, there is no, this is gets into the realm where it, it becomes muddy water because there isn't mm -hmm. A single like gene mutation. Like if you and I went and did like a, a 23andMe or one of those, you know, kind of popular genetic testing services you can do, there's no one gene that says, oh man, boom, you're going to get type 2 diabetes. It's a much more complicated collection of mutations that not even mutations, they're just like different variants of certain different genes. So right. genetics matter though. In fact, mm. despite not having a clear genetic signature, type 2 diabetes follows a familial pattern of inheritance or genetic, if you will, much more than type one. People right. always think that type one is really a genetic disease. It isn't really. Mm. It's much more kind of a random mutation, a spontaneous mutation that, you know, triggers, activates someone's autoimmune system or makes the autoimmune right. system more inclined to fight itself. But with type two diabetes, it is much, much tighter. Like if, if a person has a parent who has type two diabetes, they have like a 50 or 60% greater chance of developing it compared to someone who has a parent who's neither parent has type mm -hmm. 2 diabetes. So it's much, much stronger of a familial right. inheritance. But again, there's no clear genetic pattern, but there are differences across ethnicities. And right. you noting it is awesome that your family is doing so well is mm -hmm. awesome because the black community is one of the, certainly in the US, and this has been, there are some incredible studies that have looked at migrating communities from Africa to the US, for example, the same thing has been done for Asian communities, mm. even to a degree with European. I mean, it's not like I'm, you know, I'm a white guy, I'm from Canada, but it's not like my ancestors are from the, uh, the US, you know, they're from Scotland and Ireland and Israel and everywhere else. Basically, bring them to the United States and eat this Western diet, and they're going to be worse off. But the studies done in the black communities and Asian communities, oh my gosh, well, even you know what, I mean, everybody, whether you're Hispanic, yeah. Black, Asian, White, it doesn't matter. We're all from, you know, we're all more nuanced than just that even, of course, which I wish we would explore a little more often. But yeah, there are basically every single person on the planet has the genetics to get fat and metabolically sick. And it right. was a survival mechanism, presumably, because it allowed us to get fat when we had the opportunity and to rely on that fat um, when we didn't have food coming in. The problem nowadays is that that same inclination to allow us to weather the metabolic storms in the past has created a constant metabolic storm where there's yeah. never there's never that famine period to allow our bodies to kind of burn through what we've been storing over the winter. Mm -hmm. It's just constant feeding, feeding, feeding. And so right. everyone to some degree has the genetics for that. Everyone right. to some degree, whether it is manifested in an exaggerated obesity, like you'd maybe get in a Caucasian more readily or whether it's a modest degree of weight gain like you'd get in someone of Chinese ethnicity, the consequences are still the same. The overall fat gain may be different, but it's all taking us to the same end, which is poor metabolic health. Right. So speaking of uh, communities, like my personal mission is to educate my community on yep. the implications of the standard American diet on our metabolic health. And one of the things that I hear Jeez. often just recently is I got diabetes because this runs in my family. I want to know what your thoughts are on the, I mean, obviously there's validity yeah. to the fact that it might run through the family, but what would you say to somebody who really believes that they are 
pretty much destined to develop yeah. a metabolic disease because it runs in the family. Right, right. Oh, well, I say you fight it. So yeah. There's no question. There's no question. And this should be abundant opportunity for empathy. There's no question that there's a familial inheritance to this. That if mom and dad or mom or dad struggled with this, you're going to struggle with it too. But that's not a reason to give up the fight. Right. Our genes and our circumstances matter tremendously. They absolutely do. And it behooves all of us to always remember that and show proper compassion. But that is never a reason to give up the fight. It just means that person's going to have to fight a little more. And so if there are those of us, you know, Austin, if you're able to look at your own situation and say, I don't have to fight quite as hard as someone else, all the more reason to jump in the fight with them and Absolutely. pull them along and not leave them alone to do it. But yes, it is true that some people will have the justification to say this runs in my family. And we can yeah. say, oh, man, that's too bad. You're going to have to fight a little harder. What can we do? Well, how can I help? There's always strength in numbers. There's strength in the community. And as the world's getting increasingly polarized, oh, man, if for no other reason than metabolically, let's just come back together to just help pull each other along. Um, yeah. So that would be my response to it. Yep, genetics and circumstances matter, but choices trump everything. Yeah, so of those choices, what will be the top three things, or just three things only? What could you do yeah. to continue to fight? I'll try to not give the kind of boring ones that everyone expects me to say, but I would say, well, actually, I'll say this. Um, I'll base them on the macronutrients. I have a lot of things I could mention, but control your carbohydrates. Don't get your carbohydrates from bags and boxes with barcodes. And eat them, don't drink them. So fruits and vegetables, my view on it is eat as many as you want. Eat mm -hmm. fruits and vegetables. You don't have to count them. Don't worry about it. But don't drink them as a juice and don't mm -hmm. get them in some kind of processed packaged form. Two, um, prioritize protein. Get animal protein and try to get around one and a half grams per kilogram of ideal body weight. And so meat and eggs, those are just staples. Yep. And then third, don't be afraid of the fat that comes with that protein. And if it's a very, very lean protein, I know this is very conflicted nowadays and every a lot of prominent voices are saying, no, it's just protein and don't worry about anything else. That's unnatural. Um, right. The best proteins in the human diet over centuries, eons, have been proteins, animal proteins and animal proteins that come with fat. It was only in the mm -hmm. last hundred years that we started eating chicken. We used to keep, certainly in the US, the, the yeah. trends for eating chicken went from like nothing to the most mm. common meat we eat. It's because we became afraid of fat. Our ancestors had chickens because we wanted the eggs. And eggs have a lot of fat. That's how we should eat them. Fat and protein come together. In our hubris, we've tried to pull them apart and I don't think that's appropriate. So control carbs, prioritize protein, don't be afraid of fat. 